History, the bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, January 24th, we're going to talk about Maria Tallchief, the world's first Native American prima ballerina. Elizabeth Maria Tallchief's childhood in Fairfax, Oklahoma, looked great from the outside. Her father, Alexander Tallchief, a member of the Osage Nation, had benefited immensely from his great-grandfather's work in oil negotiations for the nation, so Elizabeth wanted for nothing. Her father, she said, seemed to own the town. He owned the movie theater that she went to. He had a 10-bedroom house, which overlooked the whole town. They had a vacation home in Colorado for hot summers. But inside the houses and behind the bank account, there was a lot of turmoil. Elizabeth's parents fought all the time about money, and dad was a severe alcoholic prone to binge drinking, and he never had to work a day in his life so he could devote all of his free time to getting wasted. The home was a full one, with Alexander's three children from his first marriage joining Elizabeth and her sister Marjorie. Alexander had had three boys with his first wife, one of whom went on to play for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and one who had been permanently brain damaged as a child after being kicked in the head by a horse. Elizabeth was closest to her biological full sister, Marjorie, who also became a ballerina. So Elizabeth's mom, Ruth, had always wanted to be a ballerina herself, but her family had been too poor, and she was determined that her daughters would not suffer the same fate. So she enrolled them both in ballet classes during their summers at their Colorado home, with Elizabeth starting when she was only three. When she was five, Elizabeth began to work with a ballet teacher near their Oklahoma home, and this almost destroyed her future career. This woman, Mrs. Sabin, was a horrible ballet teacher. She didn't know or teach the basics, and right away, she put the five-year-old on point, which is a horrible idea for that young of a child, as it can permanently damage their feet. Years later, Elizabeth would muse that it was a wonder that her feet were not totally destroyed by the woman's negligence. She started kindergarten at Sacred Heart Catholic School, and her teachers soon realized that she was incredibly gifted in all areas, and she was immediately bumped up to the second grade at only five years old. Her curriculum load combined with ballet and piano lessons kept her very busy. Realizing that their two beautiful little girls were not only charming, but also incredible dancers, the family moved to Hollywood in 1933 to get their two kids into movies. Ruth wasted no time, and the very day they moved there, she asked a drugstore clerk who was the best dance teacher in town, and he pointed her to Ernest Belcher, the father of famed dancer Marge Champion. Ernest took on Elizabeth and wisely took her off point, saving the little girl's feet. In school, she was moved back to a normal grade, but it was so easy and unchallenging that she often finished her work in minutes and just ended up wandering around in the playground with nothing to do while her classmates stayed inside. School may have been boring for her, but dance was not. Ernest pointed out that she had been taught all wrong by Mrs. Sabin, and she had to start all over again from square one with ballet. He also taught her tumbling, tap, and Spanish dance. The family soon relocated to Beverly Hills, where the schools were much better, which may have helped Elizabeth academically, but not socially, as she was teased mercilessly about her heritage and her name. She started to spell tall chief as one word, removing the telltale Native American spacing. She kept up her piano lessons, and she began to take dance lessons with Bronislava Nijinska and David Lynchin, two incredible dancers and choreographers. 
It was during this time that Elizabeth realized that she wanted to be a professional ballerina. So she put her nose to the grindstone, and by 15, she was performing lead parts in ballets at the Hollywood Bowl. She even auditioned for Serge Dunham, the director of Ballet Ruse de Monte Carlo, and he thought she was great, but didn't offer her a position. At 17, Elizabeth landed a small, uncredited role in the 1943 Judy Garland musical Presenting Lily Mars. She hated it and decided that Hollywood was just not for her, and that summer, her and her friend, future Russian prima ballerina Tatiana Ryobodzinska, headed off to New York. So Elizabeth, much like her mom Ruth, when they first came to Hollywood, wasted no time as soon as she got to New York, and she hunted down the only contact she had, Serge Dunham. His secretary said that they didn't need any dancers, and she sent Elizabeth away in tears. But a few days later, Elizabeth got a call from Serge asking her to come back and audition again. He didn't remember their first meeting, actually. But he wasn't totally forthcoming about his motivation for doing so. Serge was in a bit of a spot as the group was preparing for a Canadian tour, and many of his Russian dancers did not have passports. Elizabeth, as a U.S. citizen, obviously had one, and this, combined with her great dancing ability, made her a hot ticket. So she ends up signing on as an apprentice, performing in Gate Parisienne during the Canadian tour. And at the end of the tour, one of the dancers went on maternity leave, and Elizabeth was offered her spot at 40 bucks a week, which is about $600 a week today. So her first official day as an official ballerina with a troupe rolled around and who should show up but her old teacher and choreographer, Bronislava Nijinska, who had come to stage the Chopin concerto that Elizabeth had performed in years ago. Elizabeth had an advantage having danced it before, so she was put in as the understudy to Natalie Kraskova, Ballet Russe's prima ballerina. This caused a lot of snipping between the dance troupe as the Russian dancers considered themselves naturally superior to any American-born dancer. Elizabeth's prime placement made her the focal point of hatred for all of the Russian dancers. But the infighting would have to wait as the troupe was bogged down with not only learning the Chopin concerto choreography, but also rodeo or the courting at Burnt Ranch, an American ballet by Agnes DeMille. DeMille pulled Elizabeth aside one day, saying that her name was damaging her career prospects, and advised her to change it. Elizabeth was irritated by this because Serge had already told her to change Tall Chief to something more Russian-sounding, like the improbable Tall Chiva, which Elizabeth refused to do. So Elizabeth once again gathered up every ounce of fortitude in her spine and straightened up and said, Tall Chief is my name, and I'm proud of it. So Agnes backed up on the last name, but suggested... Maybe she should go by her middle name. And henceforth, Elizabeth became Maria Tallchief. During this first year with the company, she had her first love affair with Alexander Sasha Gudevich, the heartthrob of the dance group. They were apparently deeply in love, or so Maria thought. He even bought her an engagement ring. But he suddenly broke it off after another girl started to show interest in him. Maria was crushed, and she still had to work with Sasha, but she would not allow the uncomfortableness of the situation to impact her dancing. There was also no way to take classes while she was on the road, so Maria studied the dancers in the group that she most admired, and she spent every free moment at the bar practicing to perfection for hours and hours. Still the understudy for Natalie Kraskova, Maria found herself having to go on one night after Kraskova argued with Serge and stormed off. Maria was petrified, but she brought her best, and she received glowing write-ups in the newspapers. However, when the group returned after the tour, 
Maria was back to being one of the background dancers once they got to New York. Her parents, who had come to see her in L.A. during the tour stop there, began to pester her to leave ballet. They thought that she was too thin and stressed and not getting enough salary or any good parts. But Maria pressed on, and her second year at the Ballet Rouge would be an adventurous one, both professionally and personally. So she began to be selected for plum roles, like the lead in Ancient Russia and a solo dance in Le Beau Danube. In spring of 1944, the group took on a new choreographer, the famous George Balanchine. Twice Maria's age, he took an immediate liking to her and she to him. Under his tutelage, she flourished, loving his style and his vision. He found her a quick steady, and they worked very well together. Maria was given a solo in the Song of Norway ballet that George choreographed, and she shone brilliantly enough for Maria's mom to reach out to Serge, demanding that he give her daughter a raise. Maria was embarrassed by her mom's interference, but it worked, and Maria was bumped up from $40 to $50 a week, just an increase of about, like going from $600 to $750 in today's money. So George made it a point to feature Maria prominently, making her the second lead in Ballet Imperial, a move that gave Maria a panic attack as she didn't know yet if she was capable. She was, of course, and she knocked it out of the park. Yet there was some murmurs backstage. Was she being given plum rolls because of her talent or because of something more? George was twice her age, he 42 and she 21, but that's never stopped any man before. Maria, however, was unaware of his affections, enjoying what she thought was a mutually beneficial professional relationship. During the summer of 1945, though, he dropped the bomb in a big way. One night, Maria climbed into his limo with him, and he said, Maria, I would like you to be my wife. Maria was flabbergasted. She told him that not only did she not love him, she barely knew him. George replied that he knew, didn't care. And what's more, he didn't care if the marriage only lasted for a couple of years. Maria thought about it, kind of an odd proposal, and for reasons we may never totally understand, she said yes. And her parents were pissed. Ruth literally said, quote, I have never heard of anything so idiotic. What is wrong with you? We don't know what Maria's response was to that, but whatever it was, was not satisfactory because her parents boycotted the marriage and did not attend the August 16th, 1946 wedding. Maria had oddly found herself starting to care for George after he proposed. The generous gifts that he lavished on her didn't hurt. And she felt comfortable in the knowledge that this would not be a great steamy affair, but she would enjoy a closeness and a connection with someone whose singular passion, like hers, was ballet. They decided not to have a honeymoon so they could both get back to the stage as soon as possible. Their now intertwined professional and personal lives allowed George to be much more candid in his appraisal of Maria's techniques and talents. He knew that she was immensely talented, but he felt that she had not been properly trained, meaning not by him. And one day he told her, if only you would learn to do batmont tendu properly, you wouldn't have to learn anything else. Batmont is a basic ballet practice of alternating side-to-side movements of the working-slash-non-supporting leg, and battement tendu is when the extended or supported leg never leaves the floor. It just kind of slides between first and fifth or second and fourth position. Maria was heartbroken. How dare George tell her to relearn the basics, that her technique needed improvement? But she knew that he was right. She had seen the dancers that he had trained, and they had a grace and a strength that she did not. So Maria put herself in his hands, and under his careful guidance... She lost 10 pounds, she elongated her legs and her neck, and she mastered the turnout, which had always been the area of the most struggle for her. 
She said that she could feel her body undergoing a metamorphosis with George, and she rose to the rank of featured soloist, becoming the first person to perform Coquette in Night Shadow, the most technically difficult role in the ballet's entire repertoire. The company was struggling a bit at this point, and George began to look elsewhere for opportunity, and he found it in the larger-than-life, bisexual, bipolar philanthropist Lincoln Kirstein. The son of wealthy textile magnates, Lincoln grew up in luxury, but he struggled to find a purpose for all of his cash. And after finishing up at Harvard, Lincoln attended a performance one night of Apollo, staged by George and starring Maria, and a light bulb went on for Lincoln. He and George put their heads together, and they created the Ballet Society, which is the precursor to the New York City Ballet. Lincoln had the money and the connections. His inner circle included Gertrude Stein and John Cocteau, W.H. Auden and Cecil Beaton, among others, and George had the know-how, and he had Maria. After six months in Paris with the Paris Opera Ballet, Maria and George returned to the States, and the New York City Ballet was launched in fall of 1948, with Maria as its prima ballerina. Given total creative control, George reimagined what ballet could be. His choreography brought in a more aggressive, athletic approach that was revolutionary, but it suited Maria to a T. She dazzled in the lead roles in Swan Lake, Stravinsky's Firebird, and the Sugar Plum Fairy in The Nutcracker. It was actually thanks to her brilliant interpretation of Tchaikovsky's then-unknown ballet that launched it to the level of common household knowledge and Christmas connotation that it still enjoys today. Maria's professional career was in a steady upward trajectory, but sadly her personal life was not. Both her and George realized that they were in love with other people, and they amicably annulled their marriage in 1952. That same year, Maria married the man she was crazy about, a pilot named Elmorza Natterboff. And George was the dream ex-husband, though, because he didn't let their divorce get in the way of their healthy professional relationship. During this time, Maria was the highest paid dancer in the world, getting two grand a week, which is 20000 a week today. Maria's marriage was strained by a number of factors, not least of which was the fact that Maria was constantly traveling, appearing in the Chicago Opera Ballet, the San Francisco Ballet, the Royal Danish Ballet, and the Hamburg Ballet, among many others. So two years after they married, they divorced. Maria took a year to focus on her dancing, joining the American Ballet Theater and swiftly becoming their prima ballerina. She expanded her repertoire, becoming the first American to dance at the Bolshoi Theater in Russia. She appeared on TV shows, including Ed Sullivan, and she even portrayed Russian prima ballerina Anna Pavlova in the 1952 Esther Williams movie, Million Dollar Mermaid. George urged her to return to Germany and take the lead dancer position at the Hamburg Ballet. This was a short-lived gig, though, because Maria had fallen in love again, this time with Henry Passion Jr., known as Buzz. They married, and in 1959, Maria had her only child, Elise Maria Passion, who would go on to become a famous poet and the executive director of the Poetry Society of America. Henry and Maria would stick it out, even through his imprisonment for tax evasion, until Henry died in 2004. Maria took limited appearances after the birth of her daughter, not wanting to be away from her for too long. Maria danced in Europe, Asia, Russia, and South America until 1966, when she retired from her professional career and set up home in Chicago. She worked as the ballet director of the Lyric Opera of Chicago, later founding their ballet school, based on the principles that she learned from George. George's marriage, meanwhile, to French ballet dancer Tanaquil Leclerc, the woman he had fallen in love with while married to Maria, broke up about this time and he stayed single until his death in 1983. In 2012, Maria fell and broke her hip. 
She developed complications, and she died the following year at age 88. Maria is a member of the National Women's Hall of Fame and a National Medal of Arts and a Kennedy Center Honors recipient. There have been many documentaries and books made about her life. My sources today were Wikipedia and the National Women's History Museum. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Maria Tallchief. Please join me on January 28th when we celebrate the birth and life of Johan van Hulst, the Dutch politician who saved hundreds of babies from Nazi concentration camps. See you then.